Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 28, 10 through 17. If you have a Bible, we would love for you to join along with us. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to gift you one. Please feel free to grab one on the tables in the vestibule on your way out. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, well, again, it's good to be with you all. I just want to just take a moment to pray for our time as we continue on and hear from God's word this morning. So let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is, it is silly in a sense to, to ask for you to be with us uh, because you are here. And so, Lord, what I pray is that by the power of your spirit and the name of Jesus, you would awaken us to know that surely the Lord is in this place. May we know that. May we live in light of that truth. Lord, may you reveal to us who you are. And may we, in light of, of your goodness and grace and presence in our lives and in this world, may we live in light of that truth. And so, Lord, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. There is, a, there, there is a world of difference between the words there and the word here. The word there and the word here, and, and more, more than just the single letter T, uh, the difference is profound. Because for example, if I were to come to you and say, hey, on my way into church this morning, uh, I came across a snake out there in the parking lot. Some of you, you know, you might kind of squirm like, oh, I just don't like that. Or some of you might be intrigued, what kind of snake was it? Uh, where precisely? But if I were to say, hey, on my way up to the podium, I saw a snake in here slithering under these chairs, your, your response will be very different. In fact, you'll probably shout. Somebody would move and get up and wonder where. In fact, like, it's just an illustration I came up with, and I'm freaking out right now. I, I'm convinced that there probably is a snake in here because there is a whole world of difference between a snake that is out there and a snake that is in here. And this here-there contrast was experienced by myself and my family recently when about a few weeks ago I was in a meeting with Nathan 
and I get a phone call from my wife, Megan, informing me that there is a snake coiled up in our basement that we had, I had just finished, like we just laid the carpet down, and there is a snake that is uninvited in our home. And I'm like several miles away, and I am freaking out. And you can ask Nathan, I, like, I couldn't focus on anything. I was like, I need to take the rest of the month off. I can't focus on anything. And so because I knew even though the snake wasn't here with me, I knew that I would go from being where the snake was there to being where the snake was then here. And so we show up, and so I actually, I, I contacted a younger member of our church, Jared, who came, who loves snakes. He came over, and I was like, to help me deal with the situation. And by help, I mean, he literally did everything. And so we go downstairs. Megan wisely had covered up the snake with a box. And so we go down, and, 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 and Jared pushes the box over, and, and this is what we discover that is in my basement. This is the snake that we found, like that. <laughs> now, that's, that, that's a glorified worm, people, Okay. <laughs> And, and so Jared's like, oh, it's fine, it's totally fine. And still, I'm like, and he's like, do you want to touch it? And I'm like, I'm good, I'm good, that's totally fine. Because even in that moment, it's like, I just, I could not touch this thing. Because he's like, the mouth is barely, it can barely even bite you, you know. And so, anyway, there is a world of difference between a snake that is out there and a snake that is in here. And, and I share this story, uh, not to keep making you think less of me as a man, uh, but to show that this is analogous in many ways to how I think we do predominantly interact with, think of, and encounter the living God. I think we tend to see God in some ways as the God who is there, which for that is even hard for some of us to, to wrap our minds around. Some of you are here, and I know that, that is all, you're not at that juncture. And I'm glad you're here, and if you, your questions and doubts, I hope you know, are welcomed here. We can wrestle together. But there's a world of difference between the God who is there and the God who is here. And this morning, as we jump into our text in Genesis 28, this is very much the encounter that Jacob has. And the question I want all of us to wrestle through together is this. Do you live like God is there or like God is here? Do you live like God is there or do you live like God is here? Because again, it's, it's one thing to believe in and live as if God is in existence, it's another thing entirely to believe and live as though God is in this place. Those are a world of difference. And that's exactly what Jacob encounters in Genesis chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Genesis 28. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 together. Uh, but as we do, I want to kind of set the context for us. So Genesis 27, towards the end of the chapter, we see that, that Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, uh, don't play very well together on the playground, okay? Jacob has swindled his brother Esau into selling his birthright to him. And as a result, Esau is now, because he's been swindled, has declared he wants to kill his brother. So Rebecca, their mother, comes to Jacob and says, hey, your brother, sweetheart, doesn't really like you. You should probably leave. You should go to your uncle Laban's house. And so, so, so basically Jacob leaves his family. And so what is behind him is a brother that hates him and wants him dead. But the situation he's heading into is not that much better because what awaits him is an exploitative uncle who will take advantage of Jacob for 20 years and so, so where Jacob is, he, he is in this very lonely place, uh, as described as one, one commentator puts it this way. He says, behind Jacob lays Beersheba, where Esau waits to kill him. Ahead of him is Haran, where Laban waits to exploit him. He is situated between a death camp and a hard labor camp. And he is completely alone. And the only companion and comfort Jacob has in this place we find in Genesis 28 is a rock. And so very lonely, very isolated, 
the setting very much describes the psychological, emotional, and spiritual condition that Jacob is in. So suffice it to say, Jacob is not looking forward to the summer family reunion coming up in a few weeks. Uh, he's basically all by himself, completely hopeless. In some ways, more hopeless than Abraham was, because at least Abraham had a wife. Jacob just has a rock. And so what I want us to do is that we walk through Genesis 28. I want to tell the story and, and kind of do it by, by, by three movements. And the first is kind of focusing in on this, this idea of the place, the place that Jacob finds himself in. And, and I want to read verses 10 and 11. And as I do, I want you to focus and listen in to what is being emphasized by the biblical author here. So look with me at verses 10 and 11. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place. And he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, did you notice the repetition of the word place? It shows up three times. I think I have it bolded here. Yeah, three times. And in fact, it, there's six times total that this word shows up in just a span of ten verses. But the uniqueness of the repetition of the words here is there on purpose to indicate in the mind of the biblical author, he wants us to understand that from Jacob's perspective, he, where he finds himself is just this commonplace. Nothing to write home to mom about, nothing noteworthy of where he is. It is just a stop on his journey towards another destination. Nothing significant, nothing of consequence on where he finds himself. It is just a stop. Like, like think about it this way. Like, if you come back from a, a vacation or a road trip, odds are you're not going to be telling your friends and family members of the wonderful visit you had at Loaf and Jug on your way to Florida. You know, like Loaf and Jug. Have you guys been to Loaf and Jug? Loaf and Jug? I think we got it. There it is. Yeah. That's the worst name of a grocery store I'm convinced of. But odds are you're not going to be telling about what you did and what you experienced. Like, man, I found the greatest Twinkie in the world. Like, no one's talking about their stop at Loaf and Jug on their way to their vacation. In the same way, this is kind of how Jacob is viewing the place he's in, a place of no consequence, a place that is just barren, common, nothing to write home to mom about. Odds are he's not sending a letter back home to, to his mom, like, dearest mother, I have found this wonderful stone pillow in this li lovely, sleepy little town. Like, he's not really interested in sharing about the place he is in. It is very common, very routine, very ordinary, very mundane. And in some ways, Jacob's experience of the place he is in, this certain place that from his perspective is just meaningless, it's how a lot of us feel at times in, in the place where we find ourselves, where we spend the majority of our time. We feel as though where we work, where we go to school, where we live, it's just, it's just a common, routine, ordinary, mundane location. But little does Jacob know, and little do we know, that the place he is in is a place that will be used by God to reveal that indeed nothing is common, including Jacob himself. This place that seemed basic and rudimentary and, and routine is actually a place that God will show that nothing is common, including Jacob himself. And God shows Jacob this through what, what happens next, the dream, this very strange vision that God gives Jacob as he sleeps. And at, at face value, it is. It's a strange dream. It's hard to make sense of. We all have strange dreams that I'm sure we don't really share with. Like, for instance, I kid you not, last night I had a dream that I was in our, our church lobby, and I was sitting at one of these tables in between services, filled with people, and I'm talking to a gentleman from our church who's sitting across from me with his shirt off. 
I, I don't know why. That's, those are the dreams I have. And some of you are now wondering, who was this man? That's... That's for me to know and for you to never know. But anyway, uh, we all have strange dreams. And, and this dream is very strange, but, but as we understand it in the context of the whole story of the Bible, it becomes less strange to us. So look with me at verse 12, and stop thinking about my strange dreams as we jump into verse 12. It says, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, first off, this has got to be the worst English word translated from the Hebrew in all of the Bible, the word ladder. I, I think it's, been, it's just been carried over from the King James Version. It's just tradition. We, we associate this story. It's Jacob's ladder, which is actually, that's not the focus. Jacob never even touches the ladder, climbs the ladder. The word ladder, it's the only word, uh, the only time this word shows up in the Old Testament. And it's actually more akin to, to what is referred to as a ziggurat. Uh, if, if you know what a ziggurat is, like I have a picture of this is the great ziggurat of, of Ur, uh, which is in modern-day Iraq. And so it's, it's a temple that has kind of a, some of them sometimes have a spiraling staircase around it. And so this is more akin to what Jacob probably saw than, uh, than a ladder of what we commonly associate with in this story. But, but the focus, the focus is less on the style and the structure of what Jacob saw and, and the focus is more on, on the purpose and the placement of it. And so we shouldn't get so concerned, like, how, how are angels going, descending, de is it a wide ladder? I don't understand. The focus is not on the structure and style, but on the placement and the purpose of it. And so this, this stairway, whatever it is, it appears to be some kind of gateway between heaven and earth. It's, it's almost like it's this kind of embassy of heaven and earth overlapping as Jacob observes it. Very similar to the way we think about the Garden of Eden. It was this place where God's space and our space overlap, where, where the temple and the tabernacle was this dwelling place of God. This ladder, whatever it is, is expressing that same idea that this is a place where heaven and earth overlap. And so this reference, and then so when we see this reference of angels ascending and descending, well, that is to communicate that very point that this is not just some structure, but it is a place where, where God is meeting with his people in a unique way, that there is an overlap of heaven and earth. And so whenever we see angels encountering humans in the scriptures, it is almost always a reference to God's presence, that the presence of an angel represents the presence of God. And so this language of angels ascending and descending is communicating that God is present in this place. God is showing Jacob that this common place is in fact not so common after all. For it is indeed where heaven has drawn near. Indeed, it's where God has drawn near to Jacob. And we see that in verse 13. This is kind of interesting. Verse 13 says this, And behold, the Lord stood beside him, and I'll explain what I, what I mean here, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Now, some translations will say stood above it instead of stood beside him. I might say that in your footnote. And, and so it's hard to kind of know exactly what the Hebrew is saying here because it could be translated either way. But I think it's a better translation to see that what, where God is in position is not just over and above the ladder, whatever the structure is, but he is actually beside Jacob. Because again, the focus of the story is not on this structure. The focus is on God's presence with Jacob. 
And so, like I said, some translate, you might see that in your footnotes, but I think it's a better translation to see this as God is beside Jacob. And we see this as God declares to him in verse 15. If we read in verse 15, it says, behold, God says, behold, I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob, so Jacob has known God as the God who is there. You know, he, he knows the, the God of his grandpappy Abe, you know, like he knows who this God is. But in this moment, Jacob is awakened to the God who is here, who is present and near in a palpable sense in a way that radically reorients his life. And so in this moment, in this place where, where, where Jacob sees God in this place as kind of inconsequential, common, and ordinary, Jacob is awakened to the fact that God is the God who is here. He is not just the God of, of powerful protection, although he is that, but he is the God of promised presence. What I believe this story is telling us is that God is not just the God of powerful protection. He is that. But what God is revealing about himself uniquely here is that he is the God of promised presence. And this is confirmed by how Jacob responds. Again, the focus is on God's nearness to Jacob, not on his glorious sovereign reign and rule over creation, which is true. But God wants Jacob to see that he is near. And this is confirmed in Jacob's response. Because notice, Jacob doesn't respond by saying, the Lord is mighty and sovereign over all creation. That's true. But instead, he responds by saying, surely the Lord is in this place. Look with me at verse 16. This is the kicker. I, I think that if this, there's one key verse in this passage, this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Jacob is convinced that God is not just there, but he is now here. Something has shifted in Jacob's perspective. He is here in this place. This place that Jacob thought was inconsequential, insignificant, is now unique. Why? Because the God who was there in his mind is now the God who is here. And Jacob has been awakened to it. And, and, and he said, and I did not know it. One commentator says you could translate Jacob's reaction in this kind of colloquial phrase of, how could I be so blind? How could I have missed this? I, I could kick myself for having missed the fact that God is here. It reminds me of, of this story, and there, there's many stories like this, but um, back in the spring of 2000, uh, there was a gentleman who purchased a box of photographic negatives uh, from a garage sale. And, and he, he purchased them, he brought them to his house, and he stored them under his pool table in his basement. And, and, and they stayed there for several years until after a while he remembered them and was kind of prompted to wonder, I, you know, these might be worth some money. And so he began to do some research, and lo and behold, these photographic negatives were created by none other than the famed nature photographer, uh, photographer Ansel Adams. And, and so as, as they discovered this, I mean, it made like national news, and they came to find out that these negatives that he purchased for $45 were worth upwards of $200 million. Now, this gentleman who bought these, like, I'm sure he's thinking, like, what was I thinking keeping these under my pool table? But I'm thinking, what is the guy who sold them for $45 thinking? Like, surely millions of dollars was in this place, and I did not know it. Like, he's having this Jacob experience, because I think it's precisely what is going on in Jacob's encounter. That God has just been the God who is there, but in this moment, he is awakened to see that God is here. 
This is very much analogous to Jacob's understanding. He had no idea how powerfully present God was in this place. Because sure, yeah, God, God exists, he's there, he's even at work in the world, but there's a world of difference between the God who is there and the God who is here. Jacob didn't appear to have any kind of, uh, the, the knowledge of God's presence had no impact on his life until God moved from being the God who is there to being the God who is here. And, and so as we just pause for a second and look back at this story, odds are some of us are kind of feeling that tension like, I wonder if I'm living the same way. Is it possible that I may have an encounter with God just like Jacob and realize, oh my goodness, I've lived so much of my life with this kind of idea that God is there, but not really this functional belief that he is here. And so the question again for all of us is to ask ourselves this, is that do we live as though God is there or like God is here? And so, so let me give us a few things to consider as we, as we ask this question. What does it mean? What does it look like for us to live as if God is here? And I think there's some things from Jacob's story that help us understand this. And so the first thing I would say is this. How do we live like God is here? Well, first, you, you have to stop trying to outrun God. Don't try to outrun God because that, that's the first thing we see in Jacob's life. One of the ways we keep ourselves from living this life that God is here is by running from God. Like Jacob, we can find ourselves either running away from our mistakes and trying to deal with them ourselves, hiding from them, or we find ourselves running to new mistakes that compound the pain and shame of our previous mistakes. We may find ourselves running from God because of the shame we feel from what we've done, or we may find ourselves running towards a, a sin we haven't committed because of the allure and the draw to it, the idea that this time will be better, this time I'll find rest and peace and joy. But oftentimes, in our running away from mistakes, we find ourselves just running towards another set of problems. When we try to run from God, we compound the regret that we find in our life through the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us. But in the end, our pursuit, our, our attempts to try to flee from God, run from God, deal with our mistakes on our own, are foolish. Because again, God is not just there. You can run from the God who is just there. You can't run from the God who is here. And what I, I hope we see, what, what Jacob saw, is that, that while we are trying, while he's trying to run from God and trying to deal with the mistakes of his life, God is running after him, longing to open his eyes to see that God is indeed here. So stop trying to run from God and realize that he is the one running after you longing for you to see that he is here in your midst. So how do we live like God is here? Don't try to outrun him. Secondly, don't try to contain him. You, you, because you can't, you can't contain the God who is here. If God is just there and not here, then we will find ourselves at best kind of working God into our lives when it's convenient, that we, it will be based upon our terms, upon our time and our schedule. That, that's the best case scenario. Or... We will find ourselves living as functional atheists at worst. Believing, yes, I, I believe that God exists, but that truth doesn't radically alter any of my behaviors or convictions or attitudes or perspectives whatsoever. Does the knowledge of a holy God who is beyond your comprehension, who is here with you now, does that reorient your life? Or do you believe in a God who is simply there? Because if God is just there, you, you can visit him when you want, just like, like a tiger at the zoo. 
You can visit him when you want, and it's safe, and the tiger's not going to mess with you. And if he does something you don't like, you just move on to the next animal. But if God is only there, then we will treat him as something inconsequential at worst, or at best, we'll treat him as something that we like when it's convenient. Do we find ourselves containing God and just visiting him when it's convenient or when it's useful? If that is how we interact with, think about, pay attention to God, we know nothing of the God of Jacob who is here. And so, so I, I want us to think about this question because this is what has been rocking my world this week. Because in some ways it, it's easy for me to kind of say, yeah, I live as if God is here because it's part of my job in some sense. But I have been awakened to how many minutes and hours, and if I'm honest, days go by where I, I live without a real functional attentiveness, understanding, trust, or joy in the presence of an almighty, powerful, glorious, loving God that is beyond my comprehension. Do I conduct the affairs of my life in such a way that I am mindful of the, the awe-inspiring, obedience-inducing, worship-creating presence of the Almighty God? Do I know what I'm claiming when I say that I believe in God? I mean, I mean, truly, like when we claim to believe in God, that claim is an audacious claim, not because it's implausible to believe in God, but because it's impossible to believe that God is here and have no change on your life whatsoever. It is an audacious claim to claim that you believe in God because to believe in this God is to believe in the God that is here. To believe in God means no less than living every minute of every day with everyone and everywhere you are with an awareness and an attentiveness to the presence of God. Do we know what we're claiming when we say we believe in God? Like I said, it is, in a very real sense, an incredibly audacious claim. And so as you think about where you spend the majority of your time, do you conduct your minutes and your hours and your days with that kind of mindfulness and attentiveness? Do your behaviors and convictions and attitudes and perspectives, are they influenced and reoriented by the truth that there is a holy, good, powerful, and loving God who has called you to himself and has brought you into and has invited you into the work of bringing about hope and flourishing in this world? Do you believe that? And does it reorient everything about you? Because here's the thing. Try as you might, you cannot actually contain the God who is here. And you will find that you are actually not living in his presence. So how do we live like God is here? Well, one, we, we can't outrun him. Don't try to outrun him. Second, don't try to contain him. But lastly, don't try to climb to him. Don't try to climb to him. Knowing the God who is here should simultaneously produce a hope and a fear within our hearts at the exact same time, which sounds so strange, but these two must be embraced and experienced in the life of one who has seen God as the one who is here. If God is just there, then really our awe, our response of obedience and joy and worship is going to be very milquetoast and bland. But when we understand that God is here, we will hold this beautiful balance of fear and hope in a way that leads us to a life of awe and worship and obedience that we couldn't find elsewhere. It should produce fear in knowing how holy God is and how sinful we are in his presence, knowing that we could never climb the proverbial ladder up to him. It's impossible. And so that, that should produce a sense of fear and reverence in light of how holy God is and how sinful we are. 
but it should produce a hope in knowing that we don't have to ascend the ladder to get to him. Because, and get ready to say amen, because he descended the ladder to bring us back to himself. Amen? That's the good news. The reason we can't climb the ladder to God is because he has brought the ladder to us to bring us back to himself. We, we've said this before, but it bears repeating that the Bible is a collection of stories that come together to tell one story about Jesus. And so the reason why this story may be confusing at face value is perhaps because we don't see it in light of the grand story. This story is a no exception to the truth that everything is pointing to previewing the way for Jesus. Because that's how Jesus saw this story. When you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1, in the opening chapter we see Jesus understanding this story and seeing himself in it. At the end of John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus is speaking to a man named Nathaniel. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Again, if you remember from our story, as Jacob awoke from his dream, he, he saw and understood that this place was the place of God's dwelling presence because the angels were ascending and descending on it. Back in Genesis 28 and verse 17, we read these words as, G, as, as uh, Jacob responds, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This place that was just common in Jacob's mind has now been seen for what it is, the dwelling place of God. But this dream that Jacob had was pointing to an even greater reality of God's nearness, an even greater ladder that would bring heaven to earth, an even greater dwelling place of God's presence with his people. This story is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the greater access and mediator between heaven and earth, between God and broken sinners, between his people and his presence, where he will dwell with them forever. Because just as God sent the ladder from heaven to earth to show Jacob, I am here, I am not just the God who is there, I am the God who is here, God sent forth his son to earth to declare definitively to us, I am here and I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which is what Jesus declares to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28. So friends, what we see is that the good news of the gospel that is being declared in Genesis 28 and is made fully clear to us as we step back and read the whole story of scripture, is the good news of the gospel is not God saying, I'm sending you a ladder that you can work towards your way to me. But instead is God saying, no, I have sent my son down the ladder to you to bring you back to me. Which is why Peter so beautifully in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. The good news of the gospel is that there is not a ladder we must climb through our moral effort, our religious energy, our church attendance, our scripture memorization. It is all about God's presence entering into our world through Jesus, bringing us back to himself as we sing so beautifully in that great new hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. In the dawning of the King, 
He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of God has come. That was perfect timing, by the way. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. There is a world of difference between the word there and the word here. The question for us is have we come to see God as the one who is truly here? And the way to know him, the way to see, the way to live in light of the God who is here is to see, to look to, to trust in, to delight, and to follow Jesus, the one who drew near to us to bring us to God. So friends, if you want to find freedom from your running, freedom from your shame, freedom from your mistakes and regrets, then turn to Jesus, the one who is truly here in this place.